Welcome to the We Go Places podcast, where we catch up with We Go grads who share with us the story of the journey to their unique careers. I'm your host, Brian Turnbow, English teacher at We Go since 2001, and you just heard intro music from Andy Georgieff, class of 2022. Today, I catch up with class of 2014's Aaron Powell, global product lead at Google and freelance photographer. Aaron will share with us what it's like working for one of the most innovative companies in the world while pursuing her love of photography. Be sure to check out the show notes on the Podbean page to find links to Aaron's photography webpage, Aaron Sky Powell. That's E-R-I-N-S-K-Y-P-O-W-E-L-L.com. Joining us from the class of 2014 is Aaron Powell. Aaron, can you tell us what you do? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so I have two jobs. I have a full-time job at Google as a global product lead, and I'm also a freelance photographer. Wow. That, uh, you must have a very busy week, yeah, full-time at Google and the demands there, and then uh, and then what, what, where you find yourself with your photography. So let's maybe rewind a little bit, and um, if you could maybe tell me, what, did you know that you wanted to pursue these careers upon leaving WeGo? That's a really good question. Um, I did not. So upon leaving WeGo, I honestly didn't really have a vision, and I would say I didn't dream that big. Um, I thought maybe I would be in marketing, but I didn't really know like what type of role or what capacity. And I still think you know we always evolve and we always grow, and maybe there's another job out there that I'd be good at too. So. Did you have an aptitude for the type of creativity that would maybe allow you to go into the type of visual of, of marketing and, and all of that? Like, how did you know that you were probably leaning more towards that? Definitely. Um, so I always knew I was creative. Um, I took uh, the film photography class in high school, I think, for two semesters. And I was always drawn to the arts and just like honestly getting my hands dirty in whatever capacity it was. I realized like later on in life, specifically in college, that I also had a really good knack for communicating like in writing as well as verbally and making sure everyone was involved. Um, and honestly, my definition of marketing is just making sure you have the right people in the right place. And I knew that I had both of those interpersonal skills. That's, that's great. So you went to, uh, did you go to Indiana after we go? Yeah, so I actually, I, uh, I first started out my college career at Azusa Pacific University in Los Angeles, and then I transferred to Indiana University in Bloomington. So what, were the, what was the kind of coursework that you did uh, to begin your uh, field work in, uh, in marketing? Yeah, so at IU, um, you can get a degree or a Bachelor of Arts in media, and so that encompassed a lot of 
um, marketing courses, photography, journalism, and even some like informatics and UX design. So I took a plethora of like multimedia courses and then I started to really narrow down my focus in my junior and senior year. What was it about, what were the things that pulled you into that particular focus? Like what was, what would, as you said, something like UX design and because there's so many different Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, areas of focus that you can use uh, in in marketing and and all of that. What was that? Was the where did you? I guess this is another kind of aptitude question. Mm-hmm. Like, where did you know that you had that knack or that eye uh, to really kind of find your muse with all of that? Yeah. So thinking about all the courses I took, it was it was a bit of trial and error. Um, so for UX design, I really liked it, but I knew the math part was always tricky to me. So I then focused on courses that were more like humanities based and and talking to people and sharing and collaborating knowledge and information. And then it helped me land on my actual concentration of advertising. Um, So it was like a long windy path to get there. But I think, you know, being able to see what was out there was really helpful for me to understand what I actually liked and what I was good at. Did you have any um, internships while you were there? How did, did that, did the school set you up for that? Yeah, there was a career center at IU. Um, I did a lot of my internships through other people I, I met, so just like basic networking. But my first internship was at Wish TV in Indianapolis. It's a smaller news and television station. And there I was just like a news intern. So I didn't always help with the actual news writing, but I I was more of an admin when it came to ensuring that we had all the right people in the station at that time. Um, And then I also had an internship at the Boys and Girls Club in Bloomington, Indiana. And when I was there, it was a lot of creating and writing and designing marketing materials um, in order to grow the community at the center. What was your, what was your favorite kind of I guess, um, how do we say it? Not campaign with that, uh, with the Boys and Girls Club. Like, do you remember when you really had a type of ownership over like that particular um, ad or um, logo or, um, or or slogan? Like, when did you have like, uh, did you have like pretty much full autonomy on, on that? Um, so <clears throat> specifically at the Boys and Girls Club, they have what's called like a branding toolkit. So we have to follow a lot of their um, like, imagery and in graphics and like language and messaging that they use. Um, but I think when I realized when I was able to tailor the messaging to certain um, audiences within Bloomington, like those with that were like LGBTQ parents or those that were people of color within the community and see them actually come to the Boys and Girls Club, like that's what made me super excited was knowing that the messaging was right and it was tailored to the right people at the right time. And then we were able to hopefully impact them and their lives in a positive way by, you know, bringing their kids around and letting them hang out after school. Well, so there's kind of like a parallel track here because you said that at the same time that you were um, doing your coursework at uh, Indiana, that you were also kind of honing your eye for photography at the same time, if I, if I heard that right. So what, what was photographer Aaron doing at that time to kind of, uh, kind of um, find her muse with that as well? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, photographer Aaron was in a few different um, mandatory photography classes I had to take at IU for my degree. 
Um, and so in those courses, we just learn like the basics and the technicalities of different cameras and then also some design principles that we could use. And I was just, you know, shooting photos around campus, like taking photos of friends. And then it wasn't until one of my first friends got engaged and had a baby that actually started doing portrait photography for real. Um, and then my senior year of college, everyone's graduating. Everyone wants those super fresh senior photos. And so I just, um, you know, did some word of mouth marketing. And then it really honestly kicked off after my senior year and having those images and those clients in my portfolio. Were the, what's the type of camera that you started off with? And then how did you then um, kind of grow into maybe the next type of camera? And what type of maybe editing software do you use that you prefer um, uh, in, in, your, um, in your craft? Yeah. <clears throat> so I started off with a Canon T or Canon Rebel T5i. Um, that was the camera that was um, able to be rented from IU. So that was the one I used for courses and classwork. And then I ended up buying my own Canon Rebel T5i when I was a senior in college just because I knew that I wanted to do something more with it. And luckily, I got that education from school on how to use all of the buttons and doodads. Um, and the camera that I grew into is actually a Canon Rebel T7i. So for those that love photography, know that these really aren't like the, I wouldn't say like highest quality, but like the, the best kind you can get. They're probably like more medium hobbyist cameras, but I keep it because it's, it's simple and that's what I'm used to. Um, and I started using the T7i uh, my last year of school when I was also doing photography for Indiana University and they had different events for um, tech summits and conferences. And I, I've kept that one since. And as far as software goes, I really like Lightroom. Um, there's a Lightroom it's not called new, but like there's a Lightroom Classic, which is like the OG version. And then there's Lightroom and it's a little bit more simplistic. And I use that one after every photo shoot now. And then any Photoshop needs I have, I'll just plug that in for the Adobe Photoshop. Another question I was thinking about, because you, you have your eye for photography and how you know what to look for to make something stand out and be most powerful and persuasive and then you also have your your other eye, I guess, or your other skill set in writing. I was wondering, like, wh- is there any kind of crossover of like some some between those two that you think are the best tools of persuasion uh, when you're trying to get a point across? What seems to be like the most dependable tool in the toolbox for persuasion, be it in photography and or in writing? Mm, that's a really good question. I think it comes down to knowing your audience. And so if I'm thinking about folks or clients that, um, you know, like this weekend, for example, I have a photo shoot with a family and then I think like an 11 month year old baby. Um, so I'll really showcase them my portfolio and make sure that they've seen that I've, I've shot these kind of um, portraitures in the past. Um, but when it comes to writing, I think, yeah, just knowing who you want to talk to and what the message should be and how you want to get there, then it really determines like the breadth of the response or the message or the article or anything else. So I wouldn't say there's a one size fits all. It's just like a one size to who you need to get to. 
you graduate from IU. What's what's the next uh, step for you after that? Yeah, um, so I graduated from IU in 2018, and uh, my first job out of school was at Starcom, and it's a it's a worldwide advertising agency. But I was based in Chicago, um, and my title there is a media associate or a media buyer. So what I did was I bought all the digital media for Kellogg's. Uh, products like Cheez-Its and Pringles. So the coolest part about it was buying um, Super Bowl media, like those actual Super Bowl commercials. And then also I was able to tweet for like Shaq and Charles Barkley. Um, So when you're a media associate, you get all account access to different celebrities and you actually get to like tweet or post for them on Instagram or, or Twitter or YouTube, which is kind of fun. That, that, that's fascinating. So, like, can you just kind of, like, tease out more what you mean by that you were buying uh, or using Super Bowl? Uh, you were, you're using your brand to be featured in the Super Bowl. What was that like? Yeah. Um, I guess I say it in a, in a jargon sense since I'm, I'm in this space. But what I mean by buying media is that there's tools and platforms that advertisers or brands can use to actually bid on inventory or space within a website or like social media. Um, So I was given a budget. I had to understand like with my strategy counterparts, like what audiences we wanted to target and what creative assets or like what videos or photos would work best with them. And then knowing that information, I would go through these platforms and buy the specific ad space or like post or timeframe of, um, that type of like campaign or media. And then that's when like a video would pop up on Shaq's Twitter feed about how much he loves cheese. It's like all of that to get there was a large pipeline from the advertiser to the actual um, inventory or ad space. That's fascinating. Cause that seems like there's more logic and math involved in that because you have to have a certain eye when to negotiate the exact timing and don't go over your budget and all of that. When did you get a sense that you had the right feel of knowing when to bid and when not to bid? Mm -hmm. Um, So there's actually two types of bidding. There's like a way that's called like self-service. So I, the media buyer, media associate can actually like go in and bid on that specific space. Um, based on the, the strategy and the budget that we have come up with. But then there, there's also a way to um, negotiate with the actual publisher themselves. And then they give you like essentially a flat rate of money or it's called a CPM or cost per 1,000 impressions that you can bid on within that that's a specific deal space. What is the, how do you know that, your message or your your brand is reaching like what metric comes back to you that feels authentic that you know like yep we hit it you know we we thread the needle we totally got uh, the response uh that you were expecting how is that validated Mm -hmm. um that's a really good question so there's a lot of what's called like first party or third party data first party data being like the data that the brand owns or is proprietary so People that use, I don't know, um, like a, what are those called? Um, When you have like a a membership card at a grocery store or something, like that's first party data for 
that specific grocery store and then that gets input into what's called a data management platform and that data management platform funnels that data back to the advertisers Um, but then there's also third-party measurement companies um, one I actually used to work at called Nielsen that takes data anonymized and aggregated and then um, shows advertisers or brands like where and whom their media is targeting so it's like a validation tool to know that hey the media we're running is actually going to the right people or like if the campaign's what's called like in flight and it's still running like we have time to change it and optimize like who we're bidding on to make sure we're actually targeting the specific demographic we want to reach so you left the company to go then to to Nielsen was it a similar role or did you have um and 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 what was maybe different about this when you went to Nielsen yeah um it wasn't a similar role so at Starcom I was on what's called the buy side so I was buying media and then at Nielsen my first role there was on the sell side so I was selling um and walking clients through our audience verification measurement products um, so those essentially told clients, like, like I was saying before that, Hey, your media is running correctly and it, and it's, um, targeting the right people. So I would sell those products and it was, um, differentiated by channels. Uh, so channels meaning like it can be on your phone on a mobile browser, or it can be on an app, or it can be on your computer, or it can even be on something called OTT or over the top which means like um, a smart TV or a gaming system. So I sold products that had the user data anonymized and aggregated, but I was just uh, showing clients that they are either on the right track or they weren't. But it was a really interesting role because we had to play neutral. So we couldn't necessarily guide or direct them in a certain way because then that would, you know, show in a, in a certain sense that we're influencing for one sort of marketer over the other, which we couldn't do. It's interesting. I was just having this conversation with someone a couple days ago about when I first started teaching MTV was the arbiter of all things, what would could be marketed through it. It was like, it was a very powerful force in that, but now there's so many different avenues for media. Um, but there's also those new avenues of media have ways of trapping the the, the user usage uh, and interaction with it. What what do you find to be like the most powerful tool to 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 send a message? Which one seems to be that has the return on investment of messaging that seems to be the strongest so far? That yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I. Don't know if I can actually touch on that since I am under an NDA with Google. Oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, what I can say is, as we all know, as millennials and Gen Z and everyone really knows that social media is popping. And so anything with what's called like short form content, so like TikToks and Instagram reels and YouTube shorts, like those always do well with a certain audience. But I guess I couldn't say one from an NDA point of view, but also two from an audience point of view, like which one is the most uh, impactful as far as ROI, because there's different channels and different devices for different user groups and demographics. 
are the tools still make it easier to track in, in, in a way, and tra- maybe track is the wrong word, but to to gather the data? Like, because it, it must have been like 20 years ago, you probably had a consolidation of the message, but had no way of really validating where that it worked. But now you have the inverse of that, where there's so many different ways to bring, put out the message, but then you have a much easier way to, to acquire the data. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. There's definitely so many tools that it creates something called fragmentation. So it is hard to have one source of truth. But where I previously worked at Nielsen, like they're very well-renowned and well-respected company where I would say a lot of advertisers and other people within the ad ecosystem use them as a source of truth for verifying that their campaigns one ran correctly and in a brand safe way, and then also that it, it targeted the right people. So now I'll go back to the parallel story. Then at this time, we're at, when you're at Nielsen, where is the Aaron Powell photography uh, trajectory going? Yeah, um, that uh, I guess phase of my life at Nielsen was was really great. I had some amazing work life balance, so I was even even able to take photos and, and find clients like during the, the work week, like after, you know, 5 p.m. Central and also have um, events on weekends. So when I was at Nielsen, I shot, I think, two weddings. Um, also photographed a bar mitzvah. I had a lot of headshot clients. And so it was a weird place to be in my mind because when you're a freelancer, like not only are you the actual freelancer of whatever medium you do, but you're also the finance person, you're the marketer, you're HR, because like, if it's only you, then you have to play all these roles and have all these hats on. Um, So I would say it gave me a good space. Nielsen gave me a good space to be a photographer, but um, I've definitely taken like a little bit of a backseat in, in that role in my life, just so I can keep up with the work I'm doing at Google. It's an interesting point. I didn't even think about before about, you know, it's like we think, oh, you're just the photographer, not the, just the photographer, but you like you, you are out there doing all the kind of creative work, but like you are everything else in your company at that same point. You're your own HR person, your own marketer. What's the, what's the one thing that you've learned most that away from the photography part, that's been the most important in your freelance uh, capacity of being the owner operator of your, uh, of your photography company? Yeah, um, I think it's it's really setting a strategy for one, like how much freelance you want to do and then also like how you're going to, to bring in the work because it is a really big task to um, always, I guess, like quote unquote, be on like word of mouth messaging, like posting on social media, updating the portfolio, like being on different freelance sites. And I think the biggest thing I took away was knowing my boundaries and the time I can actually commit to it and then respecting those boundaries for myself. Cause I, I definitely have a tendency to overcommit and then I get pretty stressed. Yeah. That, that's true for, for everyone, right? We yeah. that. That's so true. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, that's, that's a uh, truer words. How did you come to Google? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so I applied to Google actually a few years ago, and I didn't even get like a rejection email. I think there's so many applicants that they just don't have the capacity always to say like, you didn't even make it past the re- resume review stage. Um, but 
interestingly enough, in April or May of this year, I was contacted by a recruiter and I was recruited for this role. Um, So what the recruiter did was followed me throughout my career journey and found a specific role um, that I like, you know, could succeed in. And so that interview process was probably like two and a half, three months. And then I found out like mid end of June that I got the job. And then I started at the end of July. So what's it like working at Google? I'm sure everyone has heard stories about all the kind of cool benefits, the way in which they give you genius hour to kind of work on things (laughs) and all of that. Um, uh, Tell us uh, some of the myth versus reality of what it's like to work at at Google. Yeah. um, As far as the reality, the perks are amazing. Um, I'm very grateful that I've worked at other companies also to like know like what's out there, but also just like the standard of which Google has and does is just, it blows my mind. Like every day it feels insane to work here. Um, the first one being they feed you. So like I literally get breakfast and lunch, like buffet every day I go into the office if I want. Um, I travel a lot. So I just got back from Munich from presenting to clients. Um, like I have a few uh, trips to LA and New York. Um, they pay you pretty darn well, um, which is very nice and something I'm never going to take for granted. Um, as far as the myths, um, I guess I would say this one is subjective, like based on the role you have, but I feel like Google does have a very good reputation for work-life balance. Um, and my role, I would say it gets a little fuzzy because I'm traveling so much Then, like sometimes I'll work on the weekends or like I'll have to work on the plane or maybe clock in some extra hours just because I'm not at my actual desk and being able to do work. But at the end of the day, it's really up to me, like when I work and how efficient I am. So you mentioned that you do a lot of travel. Did you have equal amounts of travel when you were with Nielsen and Starcom or is it just that much more that you're with Google? Yeah, I I never had travel with Starcom or Nielsen, and I knew that going into it. Um, Like on a lot of the job descriptions, it says like 25% travel or whatever. Um, But at Google, in my specific role, I'll travel internationally probably once a quarter, so once every few months, and then I'll travel domestically like a couple times a month. Um, So I knew that going into it. Is it always the same place internationally and domestically? Uh, no. So I just got back from Munich, but I'll most likely be going to Japan or India or Australia within the next quarter. Um, we have a lot of different offices in different countries around the world and how it's determined um, on where we're traveling to is based on like the, the market need for the Google products or any like pain points clients may have or just like essentially how large that market is and how much they need us, then we'll go there. Um, As far as domestically, I'm one of the only people on my team based in Chicago. The rest are in New York or San Francisco. So um, that one, as far as like being like knowing where I'm going, domestic travel is relatively repetitive. What is a typical day like? So you said that they they feed you quite well and uh, it's, it's gotta be cool. Is this, is this, is is it the big building in the West loop? Yes, it is the big building in the West Loop. Um, 
yeah, it's off Morgan. And yeah, Colton. yeah. There's the, the, my we, my wife and I have uh, been to the uh, the Ace Hotel there. It's so cool. Yeah, oh, it's, yeah. It's really nice. Yeah, the, the, yeah, right across. Yeah, the yeah, right across the way. The um. Uh, so what's a typical day like then uh, for you at at the headquarters in Chicago? Yeah. So any every day and any day is different. Um, I would say I have a plan of what the day is going to look like the day before, but it usually gets kind of sidetracked with like urgent requests or firefighting different um, problems that clients are facing. But a typical day is I usually block off time for like a slow morning because I'm I'm a morning person and I don't like to feel rushed. So that being like, I'll, I'll get to Google relatively early, probably around like 7.30, 8, eat the breakfast that they so graciously feed me and then like go through some emails and then usually from 10 a.m. to around like 3 p.m., I'm in back-to-back meetings with different stakeholders across different products or organizations. So I'm talking with a lot of engineers and product managers and sales folks, um, and then even maybe a client or two. And then the rest of my day um, after those meetings is to work on any action items or like overarching projects I have that need to be finished by a certain time. Wow. That's, that's uh that sounds like a pretty full day, but you know, like you said, you keep on, you know, it's, it's uh, very fluid in so many different uh, capacities. What I, I forgot to ask, what, what is the product that you are, um, that you work with? Uh, is it, is it many or is it one in particular? So it's, it's three products and I have different focus areas. So, um, I work on one called CM360 or Campaign Manager 360. Um, it's called an ad server. So what that means is you will put in like budget for different channels and devices and the specific ad that you want to be send out sent out to the publisher. Um, I also work on something called Display and Video 360 or DV360. That's called a DSP or Demand Slide Platform. So what that means is you can input budget into there for a specific ad and then you can um, bid or automatically bid on different ad spaces um, within different publisher inventory. And then lastly, I work on a new product that Google has. It's called Ads Creative Studio and it's like a centralized hub for different marketers and designers and media buyers to all collaborate in one space on the actual like production of the ad. So like making a video or making an image or a dynamic um, like GIF or something. And so I work on those three main products and then I have three main focus areas. So across all three products, it's brand safety. So making sure that the ad is in like what's called like a suitable space for the advertiser. Like if they only want to place an ad on news sites or they only want to place it on like, you know, environmental conversation, oh my goodness, conservation sites and they can do that. Um, But then it will block all the other media. So they, they know that it's in like what's called a suitable or safe space for that brand. I also work on third party exchanges and inventory integrations. And so the exchange is like the pass back um, of the, the bidding or the sale of the actual ad in between the advertiser and the brand. And then lastly, I work on what's called a creative horizontal. So that just looks in between all of the products that Google has for what's called GMP or um, their like overarching marketing pod. 
um, to make sure that there is like standardization and consistencies between um, all of those products and creative formats and inventory. So I know that's a bunch of ad jargon, but um, <laughs> that's those are the the three main products and three main focus areas I cover, which is which is quite a lot actually. Yeah, it really is. I mean, it's it's so interesting because you, there's so many different when you're talking about like the the brand security and then you have the actual just kind of like making sure that you have just the, the proper um, budget for everything. There's just so many plates that you're spinning there. You must be exhausted by the end of the uh, day. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty tired. I love the weekends and I love my slow mornings that I have dedicated to myself. Yeah. You had mentioned before about striking that kind of work-life balance and your photography obviously is, is such an artistic expression for you. And it's also this kind of other uh, avenue for you. When you went to Google, how did you know that you were able to get a still kind of maintain and carve out that time uh, for your photography? Yeah, um, I think it was like a personal decision that even if I couldn't do a, you know, a photography event or photo shoot like every week, at least I could try to do it like once a month or once every couple of months. Um, and also just <clears throat> not promoting it in a way that's salesy, but promoting it in a way of like part of my identity to my manager and my other um, co-workers, like they know that that's a, a big priority for me and that they're going to support me through it. Um, and so I think just sharing and being transparent with folks, like I can't like commit to doing something this weekend for work or like I can't catch up on something because like I already have made a, a commitment to a client I have like as a, a freelancer. It's, would it be safe to say that like portraiture is like the, is, is your main kind of, um, I guess, uh, kind of focus when you're in, in your photography? Do you do landscape or is it mostly like uh, people? Yeah, I would say it's mostly people and I would say it's mostly like individuals or families or, or couples like engagement photo shoots. Um, I do like doing weddings and events like bar mitzvahs or conferences, but I feel like it just makes it a little bit more difficult to actually establish like a really good connection and, and trust with your client when you're on like that sort such large scale um, like photographic needs. So yeah, I definitely do more portraits. Um, I've thought about landscape and I've thought about like product photography, like snacks or um, like beverages or, or what have you. But I think I just mostly like taking photos like of people just because of how much I get to know them and like that shows actually in the the photograph is like their comfort with me and their comfort with themselves. You know, like what is it? Is there, uh, I always like thinking about how a photographer thinks when they're lining up, like what, what would be like the inside the mind of the photographer as you're working with the client? Like, is there a, uh, a certain kind of, um, uh, flow chart that happens as you're kind of going through a, a particular uh, um, shoot? Mm -hmm. um, so I would say I definitely do some pre-work and that pre-work is like I create a vision board um, or like a posing board or sort of like schedule on Pinterest and then I'll send it to the client beforehand and then we'll talk through like, like, hey, like I'm actually like not comfortable with this pose or like I don't think that that you know, really showcases like who I am or my personality. So that by doing that pre-work, I'm able to 
like omit or avoid like any quote unquote like mistakes or awkward (laughs) things that could happen during the photo shoot. Um, But I wouldn't say like I I always have like a a set list of posing. Like it's it's really just like I have a, a few poses, like three to five poses in my back pocket. I always bring a speaker so we can play some good jams and people can get comfy. Um, but I don't have like a, a standard process of doing it or a standard way I shoot, um, maybe outside of knowing where the light is and putting them in a, in a good place instead of making them maybe look a little dreary or sad <laughs> <laughs> for sure what what would be your uh your dream photography gig Ooh, i would say i love music so like concert photography would be a dream gig of mine um we're honestly like a personal photographer too just like following somebody around like going to events like you know just displaying and portraying them in a in a way that is true to who they are but in different settings yeah that would be that that <laughs> events for concerts would be just incredible. Uh, that's so great. Mm-hmm. So, oh, wow. I mean, it, I mean, Google has, I mean, just working at Google, I mean, you just have, you just have everything clicking right now. This is a, this is amazing. Where, uh, where would you see yourself in five, 10 years? I mean, it would, is, I mean, what are, what are the uh, opportunities of, of, of career growth at Google for you? Yeah. Um, so Google is really good with like internal mobility. So just being able to move around like within the same team or same organization or also like move outside of the team and try something new. Um, They have what's called like rotational programs and also something called bungees. And so for rotations, I'm actually able to take a different job for three to six months in a different country and like see how I like it before actually applying to it. So that's pretty cool. Um, And then bungees are for people that are on like maternity or paternity or medical leave and they need someone to fill that spot. So you can do like 20% of their work while you continue to do your current role so that you can also see how you like it. Um, So in all honesty, I don't know what I'm going to do in five to 10 years. I'm happy where I'm at right now. Sounds amazing. Um, And and, uh, that's where I focus on. But on the real, I think I'll, I'll definitely be, I'm going to try to be in a role that's maybe like a little bit less demanding so I can, I can have more time for my, my passion and my passion projects and my, my hobbies. What are the types of things that you do that help you stay sharp within your field? Like, is there like a, do you like, what do you read or like, uh, is there other podcasts that you listen to? Like, what are the things that kind of help keep the blade sharp uh, with, with what you do for both photography and marketing? Yeah, um, I think for like marketing specifically, specifically at Google, there's a lot of like newsletters you can subscribe to both like inside and outside. So inside we have what's called like compete comms or like competition communications. And it's newsletters of like what our main competitors are doing for like within the ad space for our different products. Um, So I'll review those and then photography I'm a big YouTube person and I was a YouTube person before I joined Google. Um, So I'll just watch some of like, you know, the main photography influencers or like honestly anything that comes up on the algorithm. But I think what's kept me the most sharp is actually uh, having a good balance between like staying up on what's happening in the ad space, but also like doing 
like mindless activities because I feel like my mind is just running all day every day for days or weeks on end so it's it's nice to have that breather and just read like a fun book or a memoir or just like kind of keep it low-key ah, that's great ah Aaron this has been so awesome this uh this interview I've learned uh, a ton and I was wondering as we conclude the interview if you could give any tips for success for current wildcats yeah um to all my wildcat homies out there like super stoked for what the world has to offer you. Like, um, just, just keep dreaming big. But I think my biggest tip for success is trusting yourself and let that voice be your guide. Um, I know it's hard, like you're in a, maybe a a space of comparison and high school always has its, its antics, but like, if you can really find your voice and like figure out your identity or continue to evolve your identity, like keep that up and and don't let that go. Ah. Aaron, thank you so much and best of luck with all that you do. This has been so informative and uh, what a great interview. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Help spread the word about We Go Places podcast by sharing this episode with one other wildcat. As always, find past and future episodes on Apple or Google Podcasts or any other platform. Just search We Go Vox. That's WeGo, V-O-X. You can also stay current by following us on Facebook at WeGo Places Podcast or on Twitter at WeGo Places.